And this is Greenhorn Radio. Welcome to the show. On the show today, we have a wonderful friend of mine, guest from the Valley. His name is Ken Green. Ken, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi, Ken. Hey, Severin. Thanks for having me. Isn't it wonderful to have a little bit of a rainy day pause? It is. It really is. We needed it. Um, I was hoping that we could introduce who you are and what you're doing in Hudson Valley. All right. Do you want me to go ahead? I want you to go ahead. All right. So I run a seed company called the Hudson Valley Seed Library. And um, we sort of have two parts of the business. One is we run a library program where people can uh, check out seeds, like checking out a library book. And they can grow them in their garden, save seeds from the plants that they grew, and then return them to the library. And then we also have a catalog of seeds where people can uh, buy seeds, and we focus on seeds that are adapted to this region or that have history in um, New York. And how did you first how did you first get into seeds? Hello. Well, um, I was working at a public Hello? library in Gardner, New York. How did you first get into seeds? And I was learning a lot about the consolidation of the seed resources globally. Um, learning about what Monsanto was up to, buying seed companies, um, and learning a lot about the loss of genetic diversity. And I realized that in a lot of ways, books and seeds were similar. And so I thought, well, why don't I add seeds to the library catalog? And then people would be able to check them out. They'd be available to gardeners instead of people having to worry that seed that they like to grow was disappearing um, or was being grown somewhere where it was being bred in a way that it, it was no longer adapted to the area that it came from. And, and so what would you say is different about the, the seed scene nowadays compared to when you first got involved and um, what's the like, what's, what's going on in the seed world right now? I think that on one level there's a, there's whole lot more consciousness about how important seeds are and how important it is that we know how our seeds are being grown, who's growing them, and where they're being grown. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of things happening um, in terms of large multinational corporations, and in particular pharmaceutical and biotech corporations, who are really moving quickly to... Um, control seed resources and control where seeds are coming from and what seeds are available. So it's, there's those two sides to things of more consciousness and also um, more attempts at control by biotech and pharmaceutical corporations for seed resources.
And so what does that mean for those of us who are eaters? What does that mean that our seeds are um, so profoundly controlled by a very small handful of, um, of corporate agribusiness mega, mega, mega companies? Uh, in terms of as eaters, it means that, well, think about, you know, you're, you're, you're shopping, you're at a farmer's market or you're at the grocery store and you want to buy a local organic tomato. So you buy that local organic tomato. Um, you meet, maybe met the farmer. It says that it came from a local farm. Um, if you're not thinking about where the seeds come from, uh, you're missing a whole other part of the food industry. So that tomato might have been grown locally, but where were the seeds grown? They might have been grown across the country or in another country. They m it might have been grown using um, poor monocrop, um, chemical-based agriculture practices. Um, so it might be an organic tomato, but the seeds might not be organic. Or it might be a local tomato, but the seeds might not be local. So when you're a shopper and a food eater and you're thinking about your, where your food is coming from, um, it's important to think about the full circle of how our food is produced and that there's, there's two growers or more than two growers involved in creating that tomato or that vegetable that you want to buy. And tell me about the the history of the seeds, in particularly in the Hudson Valley, because I know you've been kind of a historian, a librarian and a historian, and and kind of a philosopher of seeds. Um, what have you discovered in your in your research? Well, w one of the things that I do is I collect antique seed catalogs from New York. Uh, a lot of them I find on eBay. Um, it's kind of a habit I've developed, but I love getting the seed catalogs. They're beautiful. I love the artwork, but they also teach us a lot about how people's attitudes towards seeds and towards food have changed over time. Um, and one of the most interesting things about them is when you look back, you see that people were growing a wider diversity of foods than are necessarily available right now. And one other exciting thing about looking sort of back historically um, at New York is that most of the foods that we eat now are not foods that are indigenous. They didn't come from this area. Almost all of the foods that are familiar to us that we eat came from other parts of the world. And New York is so exciting, and there was so much diversity in New York historically because... Um, most of these seeds came with immigrants. Seeds were their most important, most precious resources in many cases. When they were coming to a new land here, they wanted to make sure that they had their familiar foods, that they could cook the regional dishes that, that gave them comfort and nutrition and, and made them feel secure coming somewhere new. So there's this amazing influx of immigrants through New York, and with them comes this incredible diversity uh, of seeds. And, of course, if you continue to follow catalogs, you start to see in the 20s and then especially in the 40s and 50s, you see more and more hybrid varieties um, appearing in uh, catalogs and farmers using them. And what that really did 
was start to erode these um, habits and skills that people had of growing their food, but also doing some seed saving in their garden or on their farm, because when you're growing a hybrid, you can no longer save that seed and get the same plant if you plant that seed again the next season. So So it really makes sense then that um, since the food really um, is an outgrowth of the culture and the culture of the table, that since we're now seeing such a resurgence of interest in eating local and um, the micropollinization of America has occurred and it is um, very much Obama spring with Obama garden in every yard, that that the culture of seeds um, would also be exploding. And um, I particularly am noticing that 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 is very much um, happening in in the people that I know about. Would you would you say that that's an explosion that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was the first year that we sort of um, tried to make the seed library a bigger thing and not just at the local library. So it's a, our full time business now and it's online. So last year we had about sixty participating members in the seed library, and this year we have close to 500. Whoa. So that was like totally unpredictable and so exciting and inspiring to see that that many more people were like, okay, I'm thinking about where my seeds come from, I'm thinking about how to grow them, and I'm interested in learning how to save seeds myself. So that's been really incredible. And, and so that surge of the table and of people's excitement in the garden, it seems like um, that really is extending out into the into the landscape as well. I was talking to a farmer down the road about what I should feed my pigs because I'm getting six pigs. Well, we're getting some today, and then we're getting some next week. Uh-huh. And he was saying, well, you know, you're going to have to grow mangles. And I know that in Austria they grow a lot of sugar beets and mangles, but it never really... Have I ever been on a farm where they grew them or ever seen them in a field here in America? But I think that those mangles are a a definite part of the cultural tradition here in the Hudson Valley. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that you're talking about beets because in terms of um, genetic engineering, as you know, there's this whole consciousness happening around people wanting to um, avoid foods that are genetic engineered and also you know, uh, communities wanting to ban genetically engineered crops from being grown. Um, Beets is sort of the new, is is the new exploding food for what's being genetically engineered um, because of sugar. So it's actually going to be getting more difficult to avoid genetically engineered foods um, for people who are um, buying things that have sugar in it. And so it would be great for people to learn about, um, you know, other resources for sugar that are more local and also to be aware that genetic engineering isn't just about, um, you know, the, we, what we think of as the staple crop, um, but there's, there's more going on um, behind the scenes. Yeah, they're really, they're starting to do, I know they're doing um, some chicories, and I heard a, a new eggplant has just been uh introduced in India and the sugar beet, mm. it definitely feels like, you know, for all the, for all the turf that we're, uh, all the territory we're gaining, um, they are, 
they are themselves expanding and they have so many research dollars to pour into it. All right, well, we have to take a break. It's the, it's the radio procedure. Okay. And so we'll take a little break and we'll come back in a minute. All right. So where do we leave off? We left off at this burgeoning movement of local foods and local planting and um, and what a great time it is to be an entrepreneur um, in the middle of this um, revival that's going on. Talk, maybe you could talk about your business plan, and and it's not necessarily the case that I would have assumed you would be um, the head of a of a corporate entity. Maybe mm-hmm. you could talk about where that fits in. In terms of our decision to be a business. Yeah, in terms of your decision to be a business, exactly. Right. Well, uh, we talked about becoming a not-for-profit when we when you know when it was sort of to me that I wanted to be farming full-time and I didn't want to be working part-time at the library um, and sort of doing part-time um, seed saving. So I left the library and then my partner and I uh, were trying to figure out the best way to make this happen full-time. And we talked about becoming our own not-for-profit or becoming a business. And we really decided um, that a business was the simplest uh, way to go. Uh, we already own the property that we were living on, where we're, where we're farming, um, and there's so many decisions to be made when you're starting a new business. And we decided that um, that would be the least stressful way for us. And I had some resistance to it um, because I have so many sort of I have like a big attitude problem when it comes to um, uh, big business. Um, but the more we talked about it, the more I realized that um, it's not being a business in itself that is greedy or evil or, or you know, isn't good for communities. It's the way that you do business that really counts. So our, our focus is really on homesteading and on needing as little money as possible and providing for ourselves as much as possible. Uh, so um, the business will hopefully be able to stay very small, and we won't really need to make a lot of money from it, um, just enough, because we do need some money to get by here. Uh, so for me, it, you know, uh, it's still activism, uh, and it's still trying to make the world a better place, and it's still about education and and um, seed preservation and all of that, um, but it will also provide um, for my life here and allow us to continue to do the work um, that we're drawn to, that we're really passionate about. It sounds like you have a really beautifully principled institutional idea that you're making, and I'm especially interested in um, its location and the kind of uh, relic that you're inhabiting with uh, your farm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could comment on the evolution of that property and how it, it actually is, in my mind, a really perfect example of the retrofit that's going on across America um, in the, the work of young farmers. Um, can you tell about your property? Sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I love it here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. I just uh, I, I feel so lucky every day when I go out and I'm like, here I am on this beautiful land, growing these plants and sharing the seeds with all these people. 
Um, but the only way the land really was able to happen was by pulling together a group of friends and pooling our resources and buying the land cooperatively. Uh, none of us could have bought this place individually on our own. So basically, uh, it's a, it works similar to the way a land trust works, uh, except that it's like a private land trust because um, we all put our money into it cooperatively, and so the, there's an entity that owns the property, and then we each lease um, from that entity our houses, and if we're doing any type of um, business on the land, we lease the space um, so that it really makes having a more sort of out there lifestyle that isn't quite the mainstream, more affordable by sharing the space. And the land itself is an old uh, Catskill Resort property. Uh, there's a hotel building, a kitchen building, uh, bungalows, bunkhouses, uh, concession stands, um, and it was in such terrible condition that it wasn't really selling. Uh, the, the buildings are totally dilapidated. There's junk all over the place. And that really was attractive to all of us in that we felt like, let's not go to some pristine, beautiful piece of land and knock stuff, knock trees down and disturb the ecosystem that's there and build foundations and do all this stuff. Let's take a property that no one really wants that's in terrible shape, that has existing footprints, that has all of this uh, material that can be salvaged, and let's really focus on um, healing that land and using land that was already disturbed by people. And so that, that's really been the guiding principle for how we're using the property, is to use existing structures, fix what we can, salvage what we can't fix, um, and then there were two fields where we're having the agriculture. Uh, it's about 27 acres total. And the rest of it is all wooded, streams. It's, it's, it's really beautiful, especially this time of year. It's like a jungle. Um, so it's been a lot of work, but it's been really an exciting project and a project that I don't think I could have taken on without having a community of friends um, who are willing to make that commitment along with me. Um, would you mind telling everybody about the history of the land and of the camp that was there? Because I feel like um, in the same way as this this moment now, the Zeitgeist now is very much about reclaiming sovereignty of regional sovereignty, um, that there was a moment of kind of back to the, back to the land feeling that um, was expressed in the building of all these camps in the Hudson Valley. Yeah, this property when it was the resort was really like a, I don't know too much about it, but one of the things that happens is we'll be out in the field and a car will just start driving through and we'll sort of wave and the people will get out and usually it's someone who came here as a kid um, or went to camp here or was having some type of nostalgia for their time that they spent here. So we have heard some stories, but one man in particular who came basically described it as like a poor man's vacation from the city, that his family didn't have much money, um, but that they really wanted to be able to get out of the city for the summer, and so they came here. And he said to them it was, 
it was like coming to the Garden of Eden. It was it was paradise. Um, it was so completely different than where he grew up um, in Brooklyn, which was all basically pavement and buildings. And they came here and basically stayed for the summer. Uh, and then in the 60s, the resort had been closed for a while, and a Ukrainian group bought it, and it became a uh, Ukrainian cultural camp. Um, and they stayed in tents and some of the bunkhouses, but they didn't really work on the buildings, and that's when things started to uh, deteriorate over time. And we actually bought it from the uh, grown-up children who went to camp here, the Ukrainian kids who went to camp here. It almost, I've been driving around, um, I've been driving around upstate to go and, and get uh, feed for my, for my hogs and um, check on this orchard that I planted last year up in Greene County. And um, a lot of these back roads, are, there's wonderful old camps and they're dilapidated or they're for sale or they're boarded up and they're really, there's many, many, many of them and they're, um, incredibly well built. Um, basically, many of them are farms as well as being kind of like motels. And um, whenever I drive by, I think, oh, well, let's just convert them into young farmer training schools. Mm-hmm. But um, it's wonderful to see what, what you're making out of your camp. I wonder if you ever would do any um, seed-saving educational programs there. Is that in your future? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the things that sort of encouraged me to continue growing the seed library because when I first started it there were some really you know experienced gardeners who got involved who expressed to me fear around saving seeds even though they knew so much about plants and so much about gardening they had never attempted saving their own seeds before and for me my attitude towards seed saving was I was a beginner too at that time and I uh, my attitude was always, let's experiment. Let's see what happens. Let's watch a plant go through its entire life cycle and see what I can learn just from observing the plant. Because um, a lot of plants, you, you can actually learn mostly what they need just by watching them and letting them do their thing. So I started giving workshops, seed saving workshops, um, to really encourage people um, to save seeds to return to the library. And... I haven't had any of them here in the past, but hopefully this year will be the first year that we start having the seed saving workshops um, here at the property. So many people have asked to come and visit the farm. Uh, people ask all the time, like, can I come to your store? <laughs> and I'm always like, well, you know, it's my living room. <laughs> you could come over to the house. Uh, you know, uh, the whole business has run out of you know, our 450-square-foot cabin. Uh, the farm is the big part of things, and the house is the little part. So um, so starting in late August uh, or mid-August is when I'll start doing um, different seed-saving workshops. And uh, they're not currently on the website, um, but if people want to find out when workshops are coming up, they can get on our email list. Um, so if you just go to our website, which is uh, seedlibrary.org, there's a little box to sign up for the email list, and 
I'll send out announcements when the workshops are coming up. I'm on your mailing list. You have such beautiful graphics on there. It's fabulous. Thanks. I can't wait we've, to come. We've had a lot of fun with the artwork, um, which is another part of sort of our business model, which is we wanted what we're doing to we wanted to find more ways to connect with our community and support other parts of um, what makes a community and what's important in terms of, of culturally. So we commissioned artwork from um, all different artists in the area for the seed packs. And I love the artwork, and I love how it really reflects the diversity of the seeds that we're offering and also was a way of finding a way of supporting artists um, in our community um, with what we're doing. Well, I planted a whole bunch of your beans. I planted um, the extra special Hank bean, and I planted the Long Island my Long Island cheese pumpkins. They got frosted, but they came back. They did? Yes. That's great. I'm really excited, and we're going to be, um, I hope we'll be joined by you. Uh, I think we're coming to the end of our time, so I wanted to make sure that we get um, a plug-in for our upcoming events in June. Um, Ken, are you going to come to our goat spit? I don't know if I can make it or not yet. Okay. You, well, I, every time you tell me about something, I'm like, oh, I have to be there. <laughs> I really want to be there. And then the farm sucks me in. And I, I know. And I everyone. Every time anyone invites me to anything, I say, but I'm farming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then I always invite everybody else, too. So we have yeah. to just keep doing it. Anyway, we're having an event June 20th in Brooklyn. It's the goat spit, and we've commissioned a spit to roast goats um, on a rotisserie, and there's three goats on the rotisserie, and it's com completely made out of bicycle parts. And you can learn more about it on our blog, www.thegreenhorns.wordpress.com. Um, just look, search for goat spit, and if you're not on our mailing list, you really ought to get on there because... That's where all the news happens. Um, this is the Greenhorns. We are a young nonprofit of young farmers working for young farmers in America. In the young spring of our young president, we are shovel sharpened and shovel ready, and we hope that you'll join us. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thanks so much, Ken, for joining us on air today. I really appreciate your time and your Thanks work for having and your me. Seeds. I'm going back out to the field. Right on. We're going to go back outside. I've got to go make a sled for my rabbits. All right. <laughs> See you Take soon, care, I Catherine. hope. Bye. Bye-bye.